I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we're here to critique the hell out of culture. All right, Seth. Well, welcome back. Um, normally, um, these are real upbeat kind of things, and we banter about something uh, dumb usually for just a few seconds. But I think today we're both just real heavy-hearted as we're processing everything going on in the world, especially around uh, the most recent shooting in Texas, but lots of other stuff uh, which we can talk about. And we just wanted to take some time to process that together and uh, with everyone who listens to this and uh, hopefully to be able to provide some insight and shepherding and uh, and care. And so that's, I think, what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think there's always tension that we're trying to navigate on when are you uh, being reactive and when are you being responsive. Yeah. You know, if, if we had a podcast reacting to current events, that'd be a daily podcast multiple times a day. Because yeah, it's called The Briefing by Al Mohler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I don't think either of us want to just be tossed to and fro by recent events, but I think there was the mass shooting at the supermarket mm-hmm. by the white supremacist who shot a bunch of black folks. Sure. That was two weeks ago and this past week. Well, and then after that was the Chinese communist party guy who attacked the Taiwanese church. Yeah. Who I think there actually might be people in our church that know some people who know people at that church. So like that feels like, Whoa. And then, yeah, this, and then yesterday. So we're recording this on a Wednesday, usually record Tuesday mornings, Wednesday. Um, there's a school shooting. Yeah, right now it's 19 kids dead, a couple handful of adults. Yep. And well, and there's still war in Ukraine, and there's you know Southern Baptist uh, scandal investigations come out uh, showing that the abuse that a lot of people thought was happening in fact was happening and the leadership knew about it and didn't stop it and on and on and on so yeah i mean there's there's heavy stuff yeah and uh, our next sure. our next released episode was going to be about essential oils right so we decided we we're going to push that one back a little bit yeah. and still a good conversation but maybe not for right now yeah so we really the way this kind of tends to work is you called me yesterday around five o'clock hey do we need to do something about this yeah i was having an amazing day and, um, you know, I talked to Molly late afternoon and she said, Hey, did you hear about Texas? And I went, uh, I looked and yeah, it hit me even, I mean, these things happen so often now that you can be kind of numb to them, but it was like, there's some about kids, right? And so yeah, I called you. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know, you know, well, you know, I might, I, I'm a default underreactor, which is sometimes a strength, sometimes a weakness. But it wasn't until that night that I went and got on the Twitter and was reading stuff. And there's some reporter who, like, she was t- tweeting live updates. And there's all these parents at the Civic Center at the place waiting to hear if their kids are dead or not. Whew, and gosh. there's just one tweet that said, you can hear the wailing from the streets wow. when parents are delivering news. That these parents are sitting around hoping to find out that their kid was only shot and in the hospital mm. and how a bunch of them are not, are getting news even worse than that. And the, uh, then I, I started getting texts from folks, um, churched folks, unchurched folks. Uh, yeah, I, I had a, I got out of my car yesterday and my neighbor who's, uh, not a follower of Christ, atheist, 
just I could just tell he had to talk and we stood out in the garage and talked and hugged and yeah and the question is how do you explain this to people and what do you do with this and uh, that God you serve what's the deal there and I hear folks say things from time to time like oh my faith got me through my suffering Mm, and I and I appreciate that sentiment but I very often feel like my faith makes these things harder not easier because I believe in a personal God who sovereignly rules the universe. And so it's not like a force is out there. Sure. Like if I was just a Darwinist mm-hmm. and my entire view of how the world came into being was the strong eat the weak and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, billions of years later, here we are. Like, oh, there you go. Yeah. Explain. But when you have a view of a God who created the world that he says is good and he inhabits it and he cares about it, and then stuff like this happens, and you go, I get, my mind went to Habakkuk 1. This is Habakkuk 1, verse 2. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and will you not hear? Or will I cry to you, there's violence, and you'll not save? Like, I think about the, the and how often that sentiment is in the Old Testament in particular. How long, oh, Lord, are you going to keep, like, Lamentations 3.22, says, I pray to the Lord, but it seems that he has wrapped himself in a cloud and the prayers bounce off and mm-hmm. fall back to earth. Yeah. That sentiment of what has God up to? What's he doing? Yeah, I was reading, uh, I guess it's Psalm 77 today, and there's a spot where it says, uh, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? God, did you just forget, like, who you are? Yeah. When it feels like there's there's kind of, I, I see anytime this kind of stuff happens, these three overly simplistic reactions. One is like, well, there you go. God's judging our country. That's why this has happened. And uh, I don't doubt that that could be part of the mix, you know, but I feel like um, the Lord does, I mean, he must have thousands of reasons for anything that happens. That just feels a little too simplistic. Um, another one is, you know, kind of a well-meaning one. I think I hear Christians kind of who want to defend God and go, "Hey, you know what? God, God loves you, and God, you know, this isn't this isn't God. Like He wouldn't want this. He could, you know." And it it basically comes across as like, "Well, God would have stopped this if He could have, but you know, people have free will and people do what they want, and so you know, God kind of just couldn't." do it and no one quite comes out and says it that way but that's kind of the feeling you get like which is really a kind of way of saying like he's good he's just not powerful enough really you know um which i just wonder like how is that comforting (laughs) like if god wasn't powerful enough to stop it before why would i trust him now you know so that that doesn't feel adequate enough and then the third one is basically like a well you know god just doesn't care Right, which is more the the emotion that seems to come out in Habakkuk or in the Psalm I read. Like God, where are you? Why you know why you, do you feel so indifferent? It's this question not of His power, but of His goodness, and um, and answering this question in like overly simplistic ways just it ends up feeling not very satisfying. Yeah, and one of the things I've found just in my own heart is grasping at some philosophical explanation. 
actually mostly serves to create distance. Mm, yeah. That, so part of the disappointment for me is I see this happen. I grieve it. I'm feeling sad. I get into social media and people are posting the same predictable garbage. Yeah, I mean, it was even before I could feel sad. Like, yeah. as I was finding out the news, people are. Sh- I was also having to, you know, read stuff about mocking thoughts and prayers and gun control and on and on and on. And it's like, gosh, that that didn't take long at all. Like, yeah. All of a sudden, where it's Democrats versus Republicans all over the place. Yeah. And I'm thinking, we don't even know how many people are dead yet, and we're using this to attack. Right. And so that, that anger can be a way of covering grief. Some type of philosophical explanation can be a way of covering or avoiding grief. And so that's the part that feels disappointing to me is I think part of what Jesus models for us is this feel sad first Mm. flinch. Yeah. Like the space for grief and not ending with grief. You know, grief leads to action. Like, and so, but that, that whole thing. But there's this. And we we see, I mean, what, what what I love is that we don't just go, well, I think that's what Jesus would say. But it's like, no, that's what he did, right? When he came face-to-face with one of the worst days of his life, that's exactly what he did. Yeah, like, and I don't I don't want to focus on grief as a way of getting God off the hook because I'm sure there's some folks listening and thinking about this, like, what is God up to? Like, and, and mm-hmm. I in no way want to take God off the hook on how and why he allows suffering. Right. But my My biblical worldview will not let me somehow go, well, God, you allowed this, or you did this. Like, this is Isaiah um, 45, 7, which is a tough verse. This is God speaking. I form light, and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I'm the Lord who does all these things. Right. And that word well-being is shalom. Calamity is ra'ah, which is uh, a a form of evil, or like hurricane, disaster, Mm. mass shooting, right? There's... I'm Lord. I do all these things. I, there's no, and so I don't, I don't want to like, uh, do this John 11. Let's look at how Jesus grieves things. I don't want to take God off the hook on this. I don't feel like God wants to be taken off the hook on this. Mm-hmm. I feel like God has revealed himself as the, uh, as the author of history. Yep. And I think this, this is like the tension that I feel all the time is God reveals himself in two senses, author of history, the sovereign transcendent one, who even in the book of Genesis, you have um, God saying, like these evil people intended something evil for evil, but God intended the same thing for good. Mm-hmm. The dual intention, concurrence, we talk about that. We'll talk about that a little more later. But then also you get, so that's the author side of things. But then you also get this actor piece, which I think most of the Bible emphasizes almost 90% of the time, God is actor. Mm-hmm. He's participant, he's responsive. And if the culmination, the, the no, Genesis faithfully reveals God, Isaiah faithfully reveals God, but the most true, most faithful revelation of God we have is the person Jesus. Mm, yeah. And I hope that the person of Jesus, more so than just kind of random verses that talk about God's sovereignty or providence, shape our approach to these things. Mm, yeah. So Jesus has a friend named Lazarus who dies, as John 11. And uh, he hears that he's dying or he's going to die. And... Uh, Jesus comes, this is John eleven seventeen, and Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Well, if you go before that, if I can just look at this for a second. So John 11, verse 5 and 6 is wild to me. 
Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place he was. That doesn't feel right. It feels like, oh, he loved him. So as soon as he heard it, I mean, he just, you know, as fast as he could, he got there. Even this is like, what, Jesus? What are you What are you doing? Like, there, there's this weird sense that Jesus is not in a hurry to solve this problem. And that's, again, tough. I don't want Jesus to be off the hook for that. Like, he, he chose to do that. He chose right. to write it down. And from our human perspective, we're going, that feels unloving. But the whole grounding of this is like, because he loved them, he let Lazarus die. Right. And that is beyond uncomforting to someone who's recently lost someone. Sure. The reason that Jesus let this person die is because he loves you. It's like, well, thank you for just throwing it back in my face. It's mm-hmm. not, at a minimum, unhelpful, but it's right. it's in the text. So um, Jesus lets him go, stays two days. Then he eventually passes. In verse 17, by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. He's dead four days. Um, and they all come, the Jews come with Jesus to console, to grieve, and Mary heard that Jesus was coming. And she this is was, Lazarus' sister. Yeah, Martha heard that they're coming and goes out to meet Jesus. And Martha says this to Jesus, which is, I think, what all of us are saying right now. Lord, if you had been there. Hmm. And I, I don't know if these uh, parents or the brothers and sisters or the family of all these folks if they're Christians or not, but I imagine they're praying something like this. Uh, Lord, if you'd been there, my, bro- my where, brother where would not have you? died. My brother would not have died. Yeah. Lord, if you'd been there, my brother would not have died. Uh, then Jesus gives her some hope, and then she's like, yeah, 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 they'll rise again on the last day, and then Jesus reassures her that I'm Lord of history, the resurrection of life. But then Jesus takes his time again, and he says to her, he says, go get your other sister. She comes on out. And then when they go out to meet with them, uh, Mary says the same thing that Martha says, Lord, if you'd been there, my brother would have died. So part of the reason, yeah, same if, exact thing. if Martha and Mary saying, Lord, if you'd been there, my brother would not have died. And I think part of the reason John records this and part of the reason this interaction is here is there's this intent to normalize that reaction. Mm. Mary and Martha are all of us. When you have a sovereign Lord who could have stopped it and didn't, there's this Lord, if you'd been there. In verse thirty-three, when there, and there's an interesting, uh, oh, there's an interesting faith even in those sentences. Yeah, well, that that's where we're getting at. It's like they believe Jesus is powerful, right? But they're going, "What's the deal?" Yeah, you had the ability and you didn't exercise it, right? You could have and you didn't do anything, and so they're also not letting Jesus off the hook. Like you could make a difference and you chose not to make a difference, right? What is the deal? And Jesus doesn't rebuke their questions, which is an interesting observation. He doesn't say, how dare you? He doesn't say, if you're really a Christian, then you wouldn't be questioning me like this. Uh, probably Mary and Martha grew up reading books like Habakkuk and are kind of addressing the Lord like they heard the Old Testament writers address the Lord. Jesus, so verse 33, John 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, so he sees their tears uh, he was deeply moved. Uh, he is stirred up in his spirit and greatly troubled. So Jesus has an emotional reaction to their emotions. Elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about weeping with those who weep. Jesus does that. This is John eleven thirty five, and and he says, "Can I just say something about that?" Deeply moved. 
so deeply moved and it's also used in verse 38 that word literally means like enraged right it it, it it's described as a kind of snorting right mm-hmm. it's like like deeply moved doesn't quite do it in terms of the english translation it's like he's ticked he's mad yeah he's frustrated um he's but the whole the whole grounding of it is he sees them weeping it's their tears that cause him to weep hmm. and it's their tears that cause him to move to action and then he says where have you laid them where have you laid them like where's the tomb and they say lord come and see so jesus gets close hmm. he says i want to get closer and jesus says take me closer to the the, the locus or the, the the center point of your grief takes me closer john eleven thirty five. Short verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Mm. And this is just something that I think we need to pause and just recognize that in no other world religion do you have a God who's woundable, and, and by woundable I mean like able to be affected, like passively affected by the situation, that he's moved to tears, he spends time crying, he feels what these women feel, he feels what the Jews feel, he gets it. And this is, yeah, I remember, I remember Paul Miller uh, in one of his studies on this said it would have been sinful for Jesus to not have been angry. Yes. It would have been, in, if there's a command to weep with those who weep, to be angry at injustice. Yeah. Uh, the being rightly emotionally affected by things is part of Christian life. This is one of the texts that I think like six or seven years ago I felt most confronted by because I was pretty, I mean, was pretty, still am pretty rational, mm-hmm. observed. Um, not deeply emotionally affected by things. That's one of the things we like about you. Yeah, it's not necessarily a bad thing. But I found myself unable to weep with those who weep. Yeah. And that's not just like, a, hey, God made me this way. I'm not that emotional. I guess that's my personality. But it's like, if I want to be like Jesus, Jesus weeps. Mm-hmm. And I had better work on being able to weep with those who weep. So feeling confronted by this. And I, and I do hope that we feel confronted by this. That Jesus' first reaction is to see the tears, be moved with compassion, and to weep with those who weep. Mm. not to take pot shots at people and jump to solutions immediately. But this time spent... Nor is it even to defend himself. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I mean, he doesn't... They don't let him off the hook, and he doesn't try to wiggle off the hook. He just moves toward them. So the question I have... compassion and care and love and affection and grief. So one of the presuppositions, I would say just as a wisdom deal until you've spent time weeping about a world tragedy or a local tragedy or evil in some state until you spent time weeping about it. I would think you should not have any business posting about it or ripping off your opinions about it. Mm, sure. That's a good litmus test. Like until you've been broken by this, don't coolly shoot from the hip what you think should be happening. And I just wonder how many people would post about stuff if that was like the, the barrier to entry. Sure. Uh, so yeah. Jesus weeps. He spends time weeping to the point where the Jews say, see how he loved them. Hmm. But then some of them also say, couldn't this guy who cures blind men also stop this man from dying? And so when I think about how we engage tragedy, evil, calamity, the first thing we have to ask is that people who want to follow Jesus or be like Jesus there's a requirement for grief and reap and weeping mm. before we jump into these things. 
Now that when well, that's and that's some of what honestly, man, it's just so hard. Is like there's so many of these things, and you hear about a lot of them, and it is hard to stay moved. Yeah, by all of them, right? But like callus is developed for a reason. Sure, because of its protection. Like you, you can't do it all. And there's some well, folks, and it's just like there's just too much. Like yeah, I can't. You know, it's uh, it's the song that I really like by Ben Rector on his new album where he it's called Heroes and he talks about how the hardest part of growing up isn't getting old. It's learning how the real world goes and that that's actually it's the disappointment over and over and over. And yeah, eventually you just hear enough of it and you go like, I just I can't be moved that much anymore. It takes and I find myself there, honestly, like when Molly told me, hey, did you hear about what happened in Texas? I did not expect to be moved. I expected to go. Eh, well, man stinks yeah same but thing. then i see you know children and it was like it just crushed me yeah. and, that, and that's not right right I, I don't know that i should be more crushed by children dying than or maybe i should be i don't know but but yeah there's just this it is hard to feel that level of well, compassion you, over and over and over and then you think about all the tragedies of people you know and the stuff that like you're close to and connected to and yeah it's hard and, and none of the, like we listed off all those things at the beginning. Like you say, what's worse? Murder because of white supremacy or murdering children because of other no reasons? Reason, yeah. it's like, and it's it's all terrible. Sure. And and that's, yeah, I think. that's kind of a. And so that's part of the reason why we're doing this. Sure. Is there is a cumulative effect on, you, know, you kind of create distance. And I, I do think like social media makes it harder to decide what to enter into and what not to enter, enter into. And because there's you could find tragedy every single day. And mm. and I do think that as following Jesus, as Isaiah talks about the man of sorrows, I do think there should be an overly sorrowful thing. And uh, in the B.B. Warfield has this thing called on the emotional life of our Lord. And he talks about it. And, but there's a reason that the, the main emotion you see from Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is some form of grief. It's not chipperness. It's not happiness. Part of that's just the nature and state of the world. Like he's he's the healthiest person ever to live, the most human human ever, mm-hmm. the most unrestrained by sin, and he's probably he's the man of sorrows, mm-hmm. well acquainted with grief. So there's something in that that I think we should, as Christians, yeah, uh, enter into and be willing to be moved by that, and and, yeah. and acknowledging the fatigue and there's just reality of some of the stuff. But mostly, I just feel like for our church and for other people, other Christians. Just ripping off solutions without spending time, serious time grieving is, it just, it looks foolish hmm. and it looks unlike Christ, hmm. but it doesn't stop there. And that's sure. the, the story doesn't stop there. So we talk about how, when we see the person, Jesus, he sees, he's moved to compassion, just weeping. So compassion, suffering with passion, suffering, he suffers with, he has compassion and then he acts, he does something. It doesn't end with prayers but it begins with prayers, begins with prayers and grief. Then eventually Jesus, with a deep voice, angry at it, um, says, Lazarus, come out. He raised him from the dead. He undoes injustice. So there's this trajectory towards action mm-hmm. and ultimately resurrection. And so that that's like part of the Christian story is that death, while being worthy of tears and grief and absolute sadness, uh, when you believe in the God of the Bible— there is resurrection and there is ultimate hope, not necessarily hope this side of Jesus second coming. Like we don't have a promise that's going to be up and to the right all the time. 
there is an ultimate resurrection coming. There is ultimate hope coming. There will be a time that we talk about giving an account to the Lord for our life, but there's also a sense in which when we see the Lord face to face and the veil is pulled away, he'll give an account to us and say, here's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Not because he owes it to us, but because he'll let us in on the stuff we haven't understood and seen. Yeah. And our finite minds can't wrap our heads all the way around what he's done. And our finite minds in the future will still be finite. We may not fully understand stuff, but there's this reality of, uh, God, what were you up to? Because mm-hmm. you're omnipotent, omniscient, and this still played out. Yeah. And so, well, and, it, and it's wild in, in John, in the Gospel of John, because this is the thing that seals Jesus' crucifixion. Yeah. Right? It is the next verse in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what he did, believed in him, but some went to the Pharisees and the chief priests, so they gathered counsel together and said, we got to kill this guy. That's actually interesting. Thomas, right, downing Thomas, this is the chapter where on the, as they go to Bethany, Thomas is like, well, let's go die with them because mm-hmm. they kind of know, like, this is where this leads. And it's striking to me that, you know, in order to create resurrection for us, Jesus has to go to his own death himself, right, that this is, again, the God entering into the pain. Yep. Jesus pulling Lazarus out of the tomb is him putting himself in the tomb. Yeah. And that substitution is part of this. And that ultimately the death of Jesus to me, I'm not saying to everyone, this isn't like a philosophical explanation. This is kind of like an emotional explanation for me. Last night, as I'm thinking through this, my buddy texts me, how do you explain this to the parents? And I said, most, how do you, how do you explain it to who? The parents. Okay, like how, how would you? How would you explain it to the parents? And I said, mostly I, I wouldn't. I would show mostly, up mostly and be say, there and how cry. long, the Lord? Yeah. Right. yeah. But there's this like seed that I see that I go, God the Father has also buried the Son. Hmm. Yeah. That the Father knows what it is to lose a child and have him die. And so I can't explain it and tell them why. Right. But I can say with real confidence, the father knows what it feels like to be in your position. Yep. And he understands. Yep. Uh, he feels what you feel. And I also know that God has been in the tomb, that Jesus has died. And so Jesus knows in a way that nobody else does mm-hmm. what it's like to be your child. Yeah. Yeah, to, I mean... It, to experience no the, one more innocent than Jesus. To experience the life, leave your body. Yeah. Jesus has been there. Yeah. And he gets that. Yeah. And so what I can't say is God doesn't understand because he does. And that's something that is an answer that's only offered within the Christian view of things. Yeah. And what I can't say is Jesus doesn't know what it feels like or God doesn't know what it feels like because he does. And what I can't say is God doesn't care. Because Jesus weeps and he cares. Yeah. And so I can't say all those things. I literally can, but I'm just saying. Yeah, sure. God understands and he cares. To me, it feels like when I read the Bible and I see the God of the Bible, mm-hmm. the two things I feel most confident in asserting. I don't feel confident telling them, here's why God did this, or here's why he'd allow this. Sure. Or how could a good God allow this particular thing to happen? All that to me feels really dangerous when you start assuming those things. Like Part of what you see in the scriptures is like, when Israel is exiled and put into slavery and they're, you know, killed and like killed all the day long is what Isaiah says. 
uh, like sheep led to a slaughter, and they're enslaved and dehumanized. Uh, the why to that suffering isn't given for 400 years. Yeah, wow. It's 400 years before God answers why. With Jesus dying on the cross, the why is answered in three days. Mm-hmm. And so, so that yeah. that's difficult. Like, why this suffering, particularly? Uh, there is some suffering that we still don't have an answer for, and it's been thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Some suffering you get answered in 400 years. Some suffering you get answered in three days. And yeah. so we don't know why. So yeah. we ask why. Right. But one of the things the Bible does model for us is asking why. That's called lament. Lama means to ask why. Lamentations is a bunch of askings of why. Mm-hmm. About a third of the Psalms are laments asking why. How long, O Lord? Why does he let this happen? And so there's that big piece of that. Yeah, I mean, when people, when we just instinctively ask, well, where where was Jesus in this? You know, part of what we're seeing is like, okay, he's on his throne, but he's looking at his hands, and his hands have scars and holes because he's experienced it too, and he's been there, and he's walked through it. So, yeah, you're right. You, you can't just disengage, say he doesn't care. And so I, I think that is the place that you start, and that's probably the place to try to live longer than we generally want to. Yeah, like um, I, I remember I, I came to you a couple months ago, something I was going through, and and I told you I was going through, and I remember your eyes welled up, and you looked at me, put your hand on my shoulder, and you said, I've been there. Mm-hmm. And you didn't try to solve it. You didn't say, here's all the buttoned-up reasons as to why, and you didn't give me a seven-step approach to, but just the I've been there was more helpful than the solution. And to some degree... Uh, Jesus looks at all of us anytime we suffer and says, I've been there. Hmm. And sometimes we want solutions. Sometimes we want presence. But what God always gives us is presence, and I've been there. And sometimes we get solutions, but a lot of times we don't. Yeah. And that's difficult. So so I I think maybe now's a spot where we can start to zoom out a little bit. Because part of what we're saying is we got to go into this place where Jesus goes, and we got to stay there longer than we want to. And at some point after, you know, the weeping subsists a little bit, you do start to go, okay, how do we make sense of some of these things? So that, so let's zoom out there a little bit. I think it's interesting just in light of the story, right? They, The, the sisters both come to Jesus and go, uh, you could have stopped this, right? They know that he's, he's their God. They know he's powerful. You could have stopped this. It's really interesting to me when I zoom out and go, okay, in a, in a culture that no longer really embraces God, there's been this vacuum where we're trying to fill this God need with lots of other things. Interestingly, one of the places we fill it is politics. And so the initial reaction from a ton of people, I think about Steve Kerr yesterday, and I think about you know other people is like, you could have stopped this, Mitch McConnell. You could have stopped this, Senate. You could have stopped this, whatever. Um, and I'm not trying to talk about <laughs> what, gun legislation would or wouldn't make a difference that's not my point my point is to go like it it is interesting in the kind of psychology of the of the culture and country to go we are going to blame the person we think is in charge and the person the god who could have stopped this and our politics god didn't stop this yeah it's very interesting Um, and it's like huh you know i i don't actually hear a lot of people going well god why didn't you stop this? I hear a lot of people going, hey, Congress, why didn't you stop this? Yeah, And that in itself is just revealing about what do we think is all-powerful. Um, 
And and I think we, I mean, if we think Congress is all powerful, we're fools. And if we think Congress is good, we're fools. Um, there's no indication that either of those things are true. Well, in the whole gun control discussion in of itself, again, the I feel like as a church, I hope that we can have meaningful discussions about what it looks like to pursue the flourishing of society. That's sure. Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the welfare of the city into which you've been sent. Mm-hmm. Like, we should be seeking the welfare of the city, and that includes politics, but certainly not limited to politics. Right. And having good faith debates or even disagreements about how and why that plays out in various ways is part of that, right? Sure. Like, it's not optional for Christians to care about the poor. How exactly that plays out, I think, needs to be debatable. And the mm-hmm. way that, whether that's preeminently through charity, through taxation, or blah, 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 like, we have to be able to, as brothers and sisters in Christ, be able to disagree about these things, right? That's that's part of it. Sure. And same with, like, things like, gun. like, I saw some people posting, we need to have, you know, armed guards in every school. Right. And then other people posting, we have no guns anywhere, right? And Sure. And going, I hope that we can be a church where those people can talk it out mm-hmm. and not cancel each other and not, like, when we talk about, like, the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, there's not an orthodox position on the Second Amendment. Right. Certainly not. And we don't do that. And in the show notes, we'll put this debate that you and I both watched mm-hmm. and appreciated. Um, how'd you find about this debate or how'd that go out? Um, you know, it's a debate from the Gospel Coalition. I think maybe I got an email from them about this new series of debates that they're having. They're calling them Good Faith and their debates. They've so far, you know, as of, as of this moment, they've released debates about gun control, about whether being woke leads to liberalism, about abortion. Um, about, man, there's another one. I can't remember what it was, but I think just came out. Either way, anyway, so they're doing these debates about cultural issues, and, and I thought, I was just so surprised that the first one, gun control, like, huh, I've never even heard that really argued from, like, a, a very biblical perspective. Like, what would be an understand? how would you think that through from a theological, biblical yeah. perspective? And, yeah. And one of the things that's important to me as a pastor is that, we not believe that everyone who disagrees with us are idiots. Uh-huh. Because sure. it's just not true. Right. Right. And and that's part of the framing of this that to me is frustrating is the everyone who disagrees with me on blank issue is an idiot. And one of the things I love about debates is it at least says, uh, you know, Tim Keller has this principle that if I can't articulate my opponent's position in a way that they'd agree with, then I probably shouldn't be arguing with them. Right. And I feel like a lot of people can't do that. Yeah, at that point you're you're – creating maybe a straw man of some sort. Yeah, it's very easy to t- build something up that doesn't exist and tear it down and be like, haha, uh-huh. owned them. And so that's not, the, I just I did not want this to become a gun control podcast because that's one beyond my um, expertise. You know, think about policy and politics, all go hand in hand, the policy of society mm-hmm. and how policy really can support or discourage human flourishing. And so it's, it's not unimportant and it matters. Yeah, but it's certainly yeah. Not my my uh, it's just not my bringing it up was not to say that people shouldn't be saying, "Is there more we can do?" Because I think, of course, anybody who cares about loving their neighbor and is seeing neighbors slaughtered and slaughtered and slaughtered and slaughtered would start to go, "Is there anything we could do?" Yeah, and so and, that's a great question. My, my I was just more observing, like in this story, they go, "Oh God, where were you?" And now we go, "Oh Congress, where were you?" Absolutely, and just what that reveals about what we put our hope in. Well, the, the arc of Jesus here is he sees, he has compassion, and then he moves to action. 
And that should be our arc as well. And action includes, it's multifaceted, it's broad variety. You know, both of these last major shootings were 18-year-old males, mm-hmm. right? They're, and talk about like meaningless lists, uh, uh, problems with masculinity, mental health, students. Like, we invest an inordinate amount of time energy to students. So, like, some of, like, what are we going to do? It needs to be multi-pronged and not just related to posting hashtags about politics, but, like, investing in mental health in young men is a gigantic part of this like yeah. that in terms of like what we are going to do. And that's not a national solution, but that is a, a local way that we can participate in this. Mm-hmm. And so that, that is part of it. So let's, let's dig in. You said we would come back to the issue of concurrence. Let's, let's go into that kind of theologically, philosophically to understand. I, I think you were wise to say, Hey, you have these verses that talk about God creates shalom and wholeness. God, you know, and raw, raw, is that what it was? Raw, raw evil, calamity. Um, but let's look at Jesus, the the best revelation of God. Okay, let's see how he engages with this. But but then we do have these uh we do have these verses that are really interesting. Um, you know, my understanding of this kind of doctrine of concurrence is the idea that God determines all things through our real choices. Um yes. which is not fatalism, where, you know, God just determines everything in spite of our choices. And it's also not humanism where we just determine everything and God's kind of out of the picture, but that God determines all things through our real choices. So I, so I want to share, you mentioned the verse, was it in Isaiah 37? Isaiah 45, 7. Isaiah 45. Okay, so here's some other ones. Let me just read these. And then I, I kind of want to help you, or I want to ask you, like, help us understand how to get this, right? So Genesis 50, verse 20, uh, Joseph is talking to his brothers who, you know, basically tried to kill him says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Same word, meant and meant. And I think the right. NIV says intend or intend. Yeah, to bring about the many people should be kept alive. It's interesting. He doesn't say God used it for good. Like, hey, they meant it for evil, but God, you somehow took these evil ingredients and turned it into something good. But same word. You, they intended it badly. You intended it to create some real good. So that's one example. Another example is uh, Rehoboam in 2 Chronicles 10. Um, he's a young king, and he asks the elders for advice, and they give him advice, and then he asks his buddies for advice. And he's like, I want to listen to my buddies. And it says, so the king did not listen to the people, to the wise people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that the Lord might fulfill his word. So foolish, dumb, bad decision by the king to not to listen to the people in that instance, but it was a turn of affairs brought about by God. Okay, another example, Job 1. Uh, Job's everything gets ransacked, his servants, his children, everything's destroyed. Um, that, as you read the story of Job, in Job 1, it's clearly happened because Satan has done this. Satan's responsible for this evil. But it says in Job one twenty one, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The author says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So that's interesting. The Lord gave. The Lord took away. Wait, wait, wait. Did the Lord take away? I thought Satan took them away. No, the Lord did. And he's saying Job didn't charge him with wrong. Uh, A couple other just quick examples. Jonah is one. There's a spot in Jonah 1 where they uh, sailors pick up Jonah. They hurl him into the sea. But in Jonah 2, Jonah prays to God. He says, God, you threw me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. It's like, well, no, the sailors did. Jonah says, no, God, you did. And then one of the most significant ones is Jesus, 
right? Uh, Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So they really committed the evil. They really committed the act of you know, betraying and killing Jesus. But it says this is all according to the definite foreknowledge of God. So how do we... Okay, God determines all things through our real choices. Is God the author of sin, of these things? Um, could have stopped it. He did, did he cause it? Did he want it to happen? Is he pat like how anyway, how do you how do you make sense of those verses and just this whole idea? The, those verses along with the prayers in the Old Testament about how long Lord, why why you forget me? There's just no attempt that the Bible makes to let God off the hook on problems in the world. And we are constantly trying to explain why something's not like trying to Again, let God off the hook, and it's just like stop. Trying well, to it. It's interesting though, because you said let God off the hook. That's one way to think about it. It's also interesting. They the Bible doesn't seem to try to explain it. Yeah, there's no there's no tension. Like, like the closest you get to an explanation is probably the whole book of Job, where God ends up saying, "Hey, mind your own business. Did you make the world? No, I did. So stay in your life. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there's basically so there's yeah that so not even like hey let's get God off the hook, but like we're not even going to try to explain it. Well, it's same like in Philippians two, Paul says, you know, it's the Lord. Work out your work out your salvation for it's God who works in you. Well, is it me working or is it God working? Paul just says both, and he moves on. And so that's like that dual intention, the dual meaning, the dual purpose, the God ordaining things through the free choices of His people. And I just think that this is a good example to me of healthy Christianity often is committed to not resolving some tension. Hmm. That if you try to say, you know, God's not really in control of history. You end up having this impotent God who's doing the best he can, who's just kind of flailing about being sad about stuff. If you try to explain away human choice, you have this determinism where human choices don't matter and we feel like we don't have agency. But the reality is I have absolute free agency. I make real choices all the time. Yep. And God's... And you'll be held accountable for them. I'll be held accountable for them. Yeah, and so I'm always punished, or I w I'm responsible for my sin and, like, my, my good works, I'll let their rewards in heaven for these yep. things. Right. And so, so it's not like uh, we can just pretend like we're just airplanes being batted about by the wind. Like there's mm. real agency and, and real choice involved. And so that's why we can look at these people who commit these mass shootings and go evil murderers. Right. And wish, wish justice on them and inflict justice. Yeah. There's times when people are like, man, it stinks that he killed himself. Like we need to it'd be great. If, and I go like, uh, there's, he's going to get his. Yeah. There's like, and, there's, you know, it's not going to be good. Yeah. I mean, that's another one of the questions in the Old Testament. Lord, why do the wicked prosper? Right. Sometimes it's the people get away with this evil things. Like we're talking about stuff we know that people did or that it was evil and like they mostly got caught. There's all whole longer list of mm, things. Of sure. People, of people who did just Yeah. There's a list things. of 700 names in an SBC database of people who are, have or basically have been getting away with it. Or at least up to this point. Hopefully now they won't. But right. but why do the wicked prosper? And part of that is, well, God's everyone will be judged, period. The end. No one's getting out without having to face the judgment of the Lord. And and there's that reality. So the whole idea of concurrence, I just go, if the Bible wanted me to be able to resolve those two things, then 
Paul would have somewhere been like, and I know this creates tension for all of you, but <laughs> let me give you the clear, sure. like, let me th- thread this needle just so you figure it out. But the Bible teaches both those things. That well, and, and there's a bit of an assumption for us that if he did explain it, we would get it. Yeah, there's there's a, an illustration that comes to mind, I think. Like if I told you, hey, Luke, go into your house, is there an elephant in it? <laughs> you, you, you could go to your house and with total confidence come out in about three minutes and say yes or no. I don't think it would take that long. <laughs> yeah, 26 seconds, yeah, whatever. Right. You could poke your head in every room, come back out, be like, absolutely not, no elephant in it. And if I, if I said, Luke, go in your house, is there a scorpion in it? You could not, after no matter of many hours of searching, <laughs> come out and say 100% certain there's no scorpion in my house. Sure. Because those buggers are <laughs> up sure. in all these types of places. You would like to say, I don't think I'm there not is. I'm not going to sleep tonight now, Seth. Thanks. And there's this assumption we have as like arrogant people that God's reasons are like elephants and not like scorpions. Mm. Yeah. And we believe that because I can't see it and because I can't think of it, therefore it's not there. Whereas a lot of times God is subtle and we don't see what he's doing and we miss it. Uh, yeah, Tim Keller says if we have a God who's who's big enough to get mad at when things don't go the way we want, we also have a God big enough to have reasons that we don't fully understand. Absolutely. So we, we have to have space to admit, I am finite, God is infinite. I am a mere human. Mm-hmm. That the entire universe is like water in the palm of the Lord's hand. And I'm like a speck of nothing in the midst of that whole universe and for me to stand in judgment over god uh, feels presumptive it doesn't mean we can't ask him what are you up to lord please explain yourself right but saying because i can't see how you're good therefore you're not good is is presumptive and i, and I think it's a problem when it is that justice of god that ultimately is another place i think we have to land if we want to have comfort is to go the lord is just and he will you know vengeance is his he will repay and um you know, there's this, my favorite book outside the Bible, Safely Home, novel by Randy Alcorn about this uh, these Christians in China who were being persecuted. And what I love about it is there's all these kind of flashes into the scene in, in heaven. And in the book, um, all the Christians who have died and are uh, in heaven and waiting for Christ's return to make all things new, they're, they're kind of watching what's going on because God's interested in the earth, so they're interested in the earth. And they'll see someone um, be tortured or be killed or persecuted or whatever, and Jesus will see it, and they'll see his eyes start flaming with anger. And it's just so powerful in this book. He'll, you know, they'll often, they'll see him reach down and he'll grab the hilt of his sword and he'll begin to pull it out just a tiny little bit. And they're like going, oh, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, here it goes, here it goes, here it goes, here it goes. He's going to do it, he's going to do it. And then he puts it back. Um, and so far, the Lord keeps putting it back. But I think we have to try to take comfort in the fact that, like, someday he's going to pull the sword out. And he's going to return, and he's going well, to make Bible waste. Ta- that's of, what the Bible talks about, the day of the Lord. And Christians yeah. pray all the time, Lord, come quick. And, me, and I think what we say is, Lord, save us from this disaster. But what we're also praying is for him to wreak final judgment. Yeah, to pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, is saying, Lord, judge sin. Yeah, destroy the wicked, destroy the evil. And as someone who is sinful and evil and needs grace, there's a sense in which I go, man, I'm glad he's patient. 
I mean, that, that's what's so hard is like we have a God who, you know, he's slow to merciful, abounding in steadfast love, but he'll by no means clear the guilty. And so, you know, we rejoice that he's gracious and patient. We lament that there's so much injustice for so long, but we trust that in the end he's going to make it right. So going back to this question, how could a good God allow such evil? That's historically called the problem of evil. And a lot of what we talked about here is this whole uh, how, how to make sense of that, how to process that. Yeah. But I think the problem of evil is not really a problem for Christianity. I think the problem of evil is really a problem for atheism. Hmm. Meaning. How do you mean? So. I mean, because problem of evil is like a thing, right? That's like a. Yeah. It's like a. Yeah, you how know, could a good God allow this type of thing to happen? Right, that's like a... So the question is, well, who says what happened was evil? Hmm. On what basis? Is morality real, or is it social, a social construct? Is there really right? Is there really wrong? Is there just the pursuit of happiness? Are we just fizzing chemical reactions that evolve from tadpoles, and so now we're here pretending we have consciousness when we actually don't? It's just a bunch of stardust being smashed together is it evil or is it just what happened yeah because from a naturalistic deterministic worldview or a darwinistic worldview all we can say is this is what happened we can't say it's evil Hmm. there's no ground to stand on calling something good or bad if all that happened is we're just stardust fizzing forever yeah and so christianity is actually the reason why we can call things evil that in Western culture, we have this instinct of what is evil and what is not evil, that we believe in the dignity and value of each individual life. Guess where that came from? Genesis 1. Right. Before Christianity moved through the Western culture, there was no idea, no concept of the dignity and value of every human. That is a, a modern thing that was ripped off from Christianity. Uh, from like a purely Darwinistic worldview, where you're going... Uh, the strong eat the weak, survival of the fittest. This is all just another link in the chain, period, the end. Yep. Uh, this is a phase, an iteration of evolutionary development. So you're saying we have our prime, we have our problem of evil as Christians, which is how could a good God allow evil? Uh, and people from a more secularist type perspective, they have their problem of evil, which is how do, can you say anything is evil ever? Yeah, and what like good evolutionary ethicists will say is well like we've developed a sense of evil as a society over time okay so it's evil in order to survive in order to survive so what you're saying is we as a society decided it was evil therefore it's evil that is not grounds for calling something evil hmm. because society's view on what is evil has changed over time huh, society yeah, used sure. to say slavery is not evil now society says slavery is evil society used to say homosexuality is evil now society says homosexuality is not evil and i don't mean those things as like definitive statements but i mean like society's definition of evil changes sure over time and so you can't buy it you can't bank on it you can't bet your life on it and who's to say that maybe in a hundred years maybe in a thousand years uh we won't think that mass shootings are evil yeah i think we probably will i think i won't be here but i think things that we think are obviously evil now in 200 years may not be obviously evil yep I mean, think about all the things that we thought were obviously not evil 300 years ago, or we think the things we thought were obviously evil 300 years ago, so now we're not. Like, sure, yeah, it, no, it changes. Yeah. In just a couple hundred years, society's definition of evil has changed. And so on what grounds can you with certainty and finality say 
uh, school shootings are evil. And I think that requires a sense of creation and sin and a God who defines good and evil for us. Mm, yeah. And so if you want to be angry, I think you have to be a Christian. Mm. Philosophically consistently. Yeah. If you want to have your emotions rooted in like a big picture theological vision and a big picture consistent definition that you go like, I'm not just angry because that's my subjective experience of society being uh, attacked by some like, but if I want to say I'm angry and I'm justified in my anger, I'm angry and my anger is righteous. I think you have to have a sense of creation and sin and the judgment of God and an, a transcendent definition of evil that goes beyond societal preference in the time being. Mm. And so there is tension. How can a good God allow this type of evil? And I think the Bible does address some of that, not maybe to our fullest satisfying emotional extent. I think the main reason way that's addressed is by God himself entering into the suffering and evil and demonstrating that sometimes we can see the good, sometimes we can't, but God is sovereignly upholding all things. But I think saying, using Christian standards of right and wrong to judge Christianity mm. is a self-defeating deal. Yeah. That we judge Christianity by its own standards, that's actually kind of revealing that we're subtly Christian. We're borrowing from Christianity to judge Christianity. Yeah. And I just want us, as Christians or non-Christians who are listening to this, to recognize who says that's evil. Because I say, God does, therefore it's evil. Yep. Thou shalt not murder, period, the end. God has spoken... I don't need to talk. We need to debate this anymore. Uh, and God hates it, and He's judging it, and He has judged it, and He'll continue to judge it. And the justice of God doesn't lose. Mm. It delays. Yeah. It delays, but it doesn't lose. Yep. Well, Seth, thanks for uh, thanks for your thoughts on this. And um, sadly, I don't think it'll be the last time that we go. Hey, how do we make sense of something? But uh, hopefully, this is helpful uh, at least. For now, I just think even being able to talk about it is uh, is a, is part of the healing process, and and people can crit- criticize thoughts and prayers all they want, but I'm going to keep praying for people uh, who are hurting, and um, I think we should all be doing that. So anyway, so thanks, and uh, I guess we'll be back next time with a podcast about essential oils. And uh, do you want to give us just a for anyone who's still with us any, any like little preview about that essential oils? Remember what we talked about? <laughs> I don't know. It was, it was like it was a whole 48 hours ago that we yeah. recorded it. Yeah, so our next podcast on essential oils in the new paganism. So we can go from that. It's it's mostly about how science or scientism has overpromised mm. on its certainty about things. And that okay. kind of leads people to embrace. That is what we talked about. That's right. <laughs> and the one after that we also recorded, we're a full couple episodes ahead here, was on beauty and art. Ooh, that's right. All right. Well, thanks for listening and uh, go love somebody and uh, we'll see you next time. (laughs) 